out some, not too many years ago, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It was a remake with uh, Ben Stiller. I like the movie. Uh, it speaks to um, life, what life is about. If you've not seen it, it's, uh, it's about Life Magazine going out of business and no longer printing the paper version and moving to an online version only. And the last issue of Life Magazine that they're going to actually sell, they have to come to a decision as to what to put on the cover. And the word that they use to describe the cover is quintessence. The employees of the transition of Life Magazine from paper to online are looking for some visual on the cover that describes the quintessence of Life Magazine. It's a great word. No one uses it anymore. And as you know, I'm kind of a fan of words and the resurrection of non-used words. So there it is. Use quintessence this week. Uh, let's resurrect it. Quintessence, what does it mean? Well, quin in Latin means so that, but it also means not without. In other words, they're looking for the visual picture of Life magazine that when you look at it, it lacks nothing. It lacks nothing in describing the essence of Life magazine. And frankly, if you've seen the movie, I think they've done it. They have successfully visually seized quintessence. And the whole movie is about the, the, the hunting down of that, of that picture. What is the essence? The essence is the indispensable quality, the thing that has to be present to best describe the, the character of what is being described. It, it is an extract of that purest sense of something <clears throat> that does the job to define the character and essence of that something. What is quintessence? What is it, if you were to look at the quintessence of God, as, as infinite as he is, as vast as he is, with the finite minds and language that we have, how would we best get close, even close, to, to defining the all that of God, the essence of his character? Well, I can't do that, so sorry to disappoint you. I can try, though, and in this new series, I'm gonna give it a go, at least for me personally. I am looking back over 26, 27 years of vocational ministry and probably about 30 years of, of teaching and preaching and asking myself, what are the quintessence, what's the quintessence of God as I understand it and I've, I've experienced him over this long journey? Hoping that I have another 25 years I'm sure I'll add to these and make these look hopefully very elementary. But along the 26, 27, even 30 years of, of, of sharing God's word with people, I've accumulated some acorns along the way that are non-negotiable. These are things that are a part of my understanding 
and experience of the quintessence of God. These are keepers. These are things that you couldn't fully, I couldn't fully explain who God is to me without these milestones, these mile markers along the way. Now you have yours, we all have them. Nobody has all of them. But it is my hope as I rehearse these and celebrate my friendship with him over a quarter century that perhaps you too can agree with me. If not, make your own list, which I think is quite helpful, frankly. There's nothing wrong with going back and rehearsing what God has done in your life and what he showed you, what you've taken from him and would never allow anyone to desecrate, for you know them to be true and dependable and real. You know them to capture the essence of who God is to you, and you'll not be talked in or out of it any more than you are now. They just is. What are those things? Well, I'm gonna share eight of them with you today, and I don't know, stop when we wanna stop. The first one is a passion for God. I have, I have since the very moment on that Sunday evening when I first received Christ, I have been conditioned, thought, taught, pushed, prodded, led, pulled in so many different directions in life, but none more enjoyable than to foster a deeper passion for God. Some of these uh, things of essence that I'm talking about with you, some of them have come from experiences, from valleys, from mountaintops. Some of them have come from elders meetings along the way or planning meetings or fundraising meetings or, or sitting down with my pastor and listening to him teach me about ministry. This particular one was just enhanced just here recently uh, in an elders meeting just this past week, it reminded me. I have found, and I think you will find as well, great benefit in having a life verse. My life verse is Philippians 3, 10 and 11. I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You hear me talk about this often. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I, I, I think the essence of God is to create in us enough of a, a desire for him and a curiosity about him that we want to know him daily. We wanna know more of him, we want more of him, we wanna know more of him, we wanna fellowship with more of him, we wanna praise more of him, we want an ever increasing increase of passion for God. I put a high premium on passion. Uh, I also understand how at least how we go about ministry and most churches go about ministry works. The model that our ministry right here is based on, I don't know if you realize this, comes out of Nehemiah chapter eight, where the high priest will come and he'll share the word of God. And then ideally he stops and then people have to, they've heard enough, just enough and not too much to have to wanna process what they heard. They have to break it down and talk about it, see if they understand it, agree or disagree with what was said, and then internalize it into their everyday life. It's my hope that I can passionately share with you truth and do it in such a way that it's thought provoking. That is to say, not to tell you what to think, but to give you enough to think of on your own. 
My, my goal is to get you to think on your own, not to tell you what to do or to tell you the answers until necessary. <clears throat> well, apparently a family got together for lunch here recently after I made this statement. The more passion we have for God, I don't know what I really said, either we don't need self-discipline or we need less self-discipline. I don't know what I said. But either way, I think there's some truth to it. The more passion we have for something, the less we have to motivate ourselves. Now, passion is defined that way. Passion is defined as a, an allegiance to, an emotional excitement for, and desire for something. There is an emotional component, and there's nothing wrong with that. God is emotional. But passion has a deeper meaning, and... Uh, this is where most people fall off the, the wagon. When we read passion as it pertains to the passion of Christ, it, it has a suffering component to it. That is to say, passion is more than, I have passion to play hockey or a, to make model cars or to, to work with the Chamber of Commerce. We might be passionate about that. But the passion that we have for Christ, by definition, <coughs> has within it this inherent, uh, inevitable, if you keep being passionate for Christ, you're gonna suffer on some level. There's a love and allegiance for Christ that's born out of a passion for Christ that will eventually, in the right context with the wrong or right people, depending on how you look at it, is gonna lead you into a, a price for your relationship with him. Jesus calls it persecution, and he promised us it was gonna be ours. The passion that we have for Christ has to be more than an infatuation for Christ. It has to be a deeply devoted love for Christ. Let me give you a... Christ likens the relationship with his church as Christ and the church, like a marriage. Let me put it to you this way, and some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have been, guys, you may have been infatuated with your current wife at one time. I remember the days in middle school when I, I had so many hormones running through my hand, I couldn't even turn the rotary dial to call the girl in middle school. You're laughing because... You know exactly what I'm talking about. Why don't I just put a note in her locker? Why don't I just do that or petition her, her uh, accompanying bit to the, to the dance through a friend of mine? Can't, why can't I find out if she likes me through someone else? There was so much trepidation, but I had this raging infatuation. And nobody was gonna stop that until she said no. Then it became a deep self-esteem issue that could last easily, depending on acne or not, another four or five years. But God's not interested in our infatuation. Uh, in human terms, two people, a man and a woman, stand and make a covenant of marriage before God, and they say these words, most of the time when they're younger, when the words really don't have all that much weight. And if they did, don't worry about it. It's gonna be a long time from now. I don't have to worry about it right now. I'm more interested in going to Jamaica and all the fringe benefits of the honeymoon. For better or for worse. For richer, for poor. And here it is, in sickness, 
and in health. When those words truly come to the reality of your relationship, and some of you have been there and are there, and some of you have passed that, you understand that the love that you entered into, the covenant that you began, has inherent to it the probability, if not the likelihood, if your relationship goes into the future of some suffering. And when you're caring for your loved one in the single most personal way you can think or not even want to think about, in sickness and in health, you understand passion. That's not infatuation. Infatuated couples never care for one another in sickness. They leave. The way that you care for your mother or your loved ones in your family, inherent to that care and that compassion is suffering. To have a passion for Christ is to have a love for him where on his side, his love for us has cost him great suffering. And our love for him may well one day cause us suffering as well. The relationship with him, as enjoyable and wonderful and robust as it can be, on some level should prepare us for an eventuality that we may suffer on his behalf. That's passion. You and I are called to have a passion for God. Now, there are many churches out there and there are many pastors and there's all kinds of preachers. Not everyone's gonna talk to you about this. I just happen to be one who feels it's important. I'm calling you from deep unto deep. I'm not in any way, shape or form interested in a superficial walk with Christ that avoids the unpleasant aspects of what it means to have a passion for God. Passion for God will exceed the emptiness and loneliness of a lost loved one, lost health, lost dream, lost life. Many read Shakespeare's sonnets about love, but they never fall in love. They never love, and they never care for one in the depths of despair and sickness. That's Christ, a passion for Christ. Many consider the academia they feel necessary to understand Christ and to study doctrine. As wonderful and necessary as that is, my friend, there's not much suffering in a library cubicle or classroom. Paul writes this verse after having been more educated about Christ and God and the Old Testament and the law of God and the Pentateuch than anyone. And he says, I just want to know him. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That is to say, if I suffer on his behalf, let's go backwards with it. If I suffer for him on his behalf, it means that I loved him enough to suffer for him and to endure the suffering. I'm not infatuated. I'm not the first one off the bus. I'm a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ at any expense including my life, to have a passion for God. That's part of the quintessence of God, suffering. 
Number two, victory and violence. The more I watch reels on social media, the more I watch the news, the more I listen to our culture crying out, the more I hear the reverberations of, of absolute despondency and rage, road rage, political rage, social rage, social injustice, violation of rights. I, the more I hear the undercurrent of the anger of our country, churning and developing and spreading and invading and infecting different areas of relationships and the, the home and each institution. There's a under, it's like a volcano with an ever increasing temperature and rage that you know one day is just gonna bust the surface. We are a mad, at times violent, bullying country at our worst possible perspective, it's there. You can't deny it. We're divided and we're angry and it's just bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And here we are Christians, evangelical Christians in the middle of the whole mix. What in the world is our role in this angry, violent world? Where fourth graders wanna kill each other on the playground. Grown adults won't stop insulting one another and the rage continues. We stop and brake check other drivers and get out of the car and we pull out clubs and guns and we're looking to some sort of quick solution. We are angry. Well, there's no shortage of violence. Will the church of Jesus Christ learn the quintessence of God and realize because if we don't, the church won't fail to exist. It'll just fail to be effective. We're already on the verge of our own self-ineffectiveness as a body of believers because we rage and fight as well, verbally, physically, socially, culturally. We get in the fight. This verse to me, is of the quintessence of God, that unless we embrace it and walk it out, we will lose all kinds of credibility. We've already lost a generation or two. The next two generations will decide how double-minded and double-standard we are if we don't learn this one thing. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We struggle against one another while the true culprit slithers between our feet, only to pull string after string like a marionette while Christians attack any and everyone around them. The devil skates off and has no resistance from the only enemy he has who can destroy him us in Christ. Will we engage or will we continue against flesh and blood? We seem to want something from people who don't know Christ that they can't give us. But at the same time, we won't give them Christ. They can't win. Only the devil wins.
That is part of the essence of who God is in our cultural moment. Passion for God, victory and violence. Our struggle is not against other human beings. It's again, it's against the spirit behind them, motivating them, stirring them up, for which they have no influence and no control. Number three, probably the least used word that needs to be the most talked about, anointing. First John two and 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. It's the least explored. Many of us are even shut off to the real understanding, if not practice of the word, we don't. We know it's a biblical thing, but it's not on our list of priorities. It's the least realized and the least locked in. We have an anointing from the Holy One. We, we have an empowerment from the Holy One. We have discernment, we have wisdom, we have clarity, we have insight from the Holy One to know how to deal with life, with death, with culture, with darkness, with, with spiritual forces of evil, Every, everything. We have the empowerment of God to handle these things and it has to be a priority to us, the anointing of God. I'm thinking about this over the years. How many people have I interviewed for a job in ministry? How many songs have I sung in church services? How many conversations have people had about, I like this kind of music, and I, I really like this kind of music, and I like the traditional, I like the old stuff, and then I like the contemporary, and then someone says, I like this kind of stuff. To me, it's all wrong, 100% wrong. We look for the ability of a man or a woman. We look for the popularity of a song. We look for the trends. We look for the fads. But nobody looks for what's anointed. I don't care if Metallica comes out with a song. If God anoints it, I'm for it. I'm for whatever is touched by God, whatever has the hand of God on it, whatever lyrics honor and are true and righteous and praiseworthy and perfect and admirable and noble. I just wanna know, is the guy anointed? Is the woman anointed? Is, can God use that person? Do they even know that? Are they even available to that? If, what are we doing? I'm not capable of being a pastor, as you well know. I'm not capable of being a preacher. I'm nothing. We're nothing. We can do nothing apart from God, nothing. The question is, what about the style? What about the volume? What about the, what about the, the, just the energy, who cares? It's about the anointing. You could stand up here and be as boring as all get out, but if God anoints you, you break a yoke. You break a yoke. The yoke isn't broken by style or force or volume. It's not about timing or humor or stories or testimonies. It's about anointing, anointing, anointing. Your, your ability to minister to your neighbors or your family members or the lost or whatever the case may be, it's not based on your ability or your, how much you've learned necessarily, although all that comes into play. It's based on whether or not you can communicate under the power of the anointing of the Spirit of God, where God penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's about a surgical 
exercise of the penetration of the Spirit of God to a human heart, a human mind, a human heart. I mean, that's all there is. When something leaves your mouth and something is seen in your behavior, it has to go somewhere. It has to get inside a heart. It has to find a nook or a cranny. It has to go in there under the power of the Spirit. Or you got nothing. Nothing. I ask people all the time. I asked a young man this the other day. Would you hire yourself to run the rest of your life? There shouldn't be any hesitation <laughs> that if your life really stinks, you're not where you want to be. Replace yourself. Whoever's in charge of your life, if it's you, replace yourself. You need to hire somebody else to run your life. What's his name? Christ Jesus. What do you mean, who's his name? Christ. He could run every one of our lives far better than we can. Far better. He could run a business far better than you can. He could do a ministry far better. It's all about him. Apart from me, you'll do nothing. Anointing. John 2 and 20. It's part of the quintessence of God. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. He didn't ask us if we knew the truth. You can know the truth, but not have anointed, not be anointed. There's, there are professors who know more Bible than collectively everyone in this room, but they don't know the author and they don't have the anointing. What do you think in your marriage when you're caring for that sick, decrepit husband of yours 30 plus years from now, and it's another day of expressing the love of Christ in a way that is, not been, not been experienced before. God forbid if my wife comes in and wipes the pudding off my cheek 30 years from now and has to care for me day in and day out. God, I hope she's anointed. <laughs> really? And vice versa, I hope I am to her. I want the power of God at work to love her and be compassionate towards her at her time of need, not just, not just on my reservoir. I don't have a reservoir. I need the power of God to do that and to do it right, to respect, to care for, to be compassionate. You have an anointing from the Holy One, passion for God, victory and violence. I find this next one to be part of the quintessence of God. I, I just cannot, I cannot bring myself to negotiate this out of the quintessence of God. Voice. Voice. Not all of us here have lived pre and post social media. In fact, don't you watch old movies sometimes and you just wonder to yourself, when did the cell phone come around? I can't write, when does that happen? And usually it's with the guy with the military walkie-talkie calling somebody from his car. That's when you know, all right, when was this movie made? That was about when the cell phone came out. But it's hard now to think about when there wasn't social media. But ask yourself this question, why is social media so popular? And I think, I think it's because before social media, cabillions and cabillions of people had a limited, if not absence of a voice. 
They had no platform on which to share, to speak, to influence, to express. They had no cathartic uh, outlet in which to vent. They, they didn't have a voice. Or if they had a voice that was so limited, they wanted more, and all of a sudden you give them a way to speak to the nations in their own mind now. They can say what they want, what they believe, don't believe. They can build up or tear down because they now have a platform to have a voice. And that's a powerful thing. It can be used for good, it can be used for not so good, but a voice. People who never had a voice all of a sudden had a voice, and their voice, for the most part, at least to them, felt it was equal to everyone else's voice. People want a voice, apparently. John 1.23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. People want to be seen, understood, heard, and recognized. You can hear the voice of God. He has more of a voice than anyone, and he has no social media platform. Imagine that. You can hear the voice of God, and you can speak the voice of God. And when the voice of God is spoken, it's hard to dispute its reality and its effects. When the voice of God is spoken to someone not accustomed to hearing it, they hear something different than they normally hear anyone else. They know the origin of that voice is different than everyone else's. And when personalized, they feel as though that voice is speaking to them, they just might open the little nook or cranny in their own heart and let that voice in. If not for a moment, they understand that feels different. I can feel that voice, other voices I only hear or ignore. The voice. The voice of God that shakes the cedars of Lebanon or the rivers clap their hands or the mountains bow down. Or the... When you think about how we have access to what will make a difference to differ the world, it's astounding. The, the unwillingness, inability, or ignorance to put into practice the very tools that God puts in our toolbox is the greatest sin of all. Here, I want you to go change the world. Here's a toolbox. In it, I'll put my voice, my power, my anointing, passion for me, compassion for others, and, and an understanding how to do warfare so you win every time. You win by surrendering, by being last, by being humble. It's totally different. All of the secrets we've been given. We've been given the strategy. Don't sit in a chair of honor. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble, humble yourself and I'll exalt you. Lift up Jesus, he'll draw all men to himself. <coughs> Here we are trying to get men to come to Christ without exalting Christ. It's right there. All of the secrets, all the tools, all the strategies, all the ways to go about changing the world are right there in your toolbox.
Just don't conform to the patterns of this world. That's part of the quintessence of God. Here's one. This is so important. I run into this time and time and time again. Number five, there are two fathers. Two fathers. Lord, would you teach us to pray? He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus in Matthew 6 and 10 is trying to tell every person in this room in the sound of my voice this very one thing, this first reality. And to some of you, it'll be an important, important, and very vital reality. To others of you, not as much, but still important. You have two fathers. The one, your biological father and your heavenly father. And he's quick as he teaches us to pray to recognize that there are two, a biological father and a heavenly father. And hallowed be his name. What he's trying to tell us from the get-go is for knowing our need of this understanding is this. Your heavenly father may have checked up short. He knows about generational trends. He knows about generational conditioning and learning and passing on traits. He knows about alcoholism, drug abuse. He knows about verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. In fact, he was recipient of all of those things in his suffering for us. So let's not, let's not say he's in the executive washroom the whole time. No, Christ is in our suffering, experiencing it. But I never had this. Many of you did not. I had a jam-up dad. He wasn't perfect, but I miss him to this day. He was a good man. He loved his family. He cared for his family, provided for his family. He did the best he could. He loved his dad. He loved me. But let's say he didn't. Let's say he lacked the capacity to be who I needed him to be. Let's say he was a horrible father, which he wasn't. You have a heavenly father. And guess what? He went to your ball games. He was at your graduation. He was there when you got your driver's license and took your first ride in the car. He never wavered from you. He knew your every hurt, your every pain, your every tear. He collected your tears in a bottle and and promised you later in life, just read it, he'll make a fine wine out of them. Jesus is trying to tell you, you have a heavenly father. The quintessence of God is this. I am the way, truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me. Jesus understands his need of submission to his Father as an example to our submission to our Heavenly Father. And if our earthly Father isn't warranted the respect or didn't walk in the authority he was supposed to walk in or wasn't even there, had just abandoned us, our Heavenly Father did not. The first thing you learned about prayer is you had someone to pray to even in the absence of the person you needed to count on and trust the most. Our Heavenly Father. 
And he loves you every bit as much now as he did then. But each and every one of us grew up in a broken, fractured world where any and everything was possible, and that's not his fault, it's our way. He's, he's here to redeem us out of that. He sees you, he saw you, he understands you, he understood you. And he was your ever-present help in time of trouble. We don't even know, this is another thing, we don't even know what he, he, he kept from us. That would have been too much. Two fathers. Hallowed be his name. You know what? He said, there's more to prayer than just realizing that I'm your father. He gives us what we need more than, as much if not more than that sometimes then this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy world, word will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As you go through it, you don't realize it at first glance. It's one of the most important things about the quintessence of God in prayer. Is he writes the entire prayer, not in his own singular voice, but in their collective voice. Give us this day our daily bread in the plural. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our egocentric lost state says, look at this prayer from my perspective. Meet my needs. Let me cry out to God for what he can do for me. Let's get me taken care of, I'll take care of others. And Jesus says, it was never like that. <clears throat> I'm about community, I'm about the church, I'm about family. Not only do you have a heavenly father, you have brothers and sisters. You have shared burdens, shared experiences, shared victories. You're interdependently connected and counting on one another as the family of God. In marriage, in church, my church shall be a house of prayer for all nations. How in the world can a house of prayer for all nations not incorporate the very prayer that Jesus used to teach us how to pray and further solidify the sense of bond and connectedness that are supposed to be experienced in a local church? Us, we, our. Jesus wants us in a family with a heavenly father. You stand back and look at the church and you wonder sometimes. But when you leave, you walk into your car and that, I don't know how to explain it, that spiritual residue kind of hangs around you the rest of Sunday afternoon. Put your head down on the pillow and you take account what happened that day. I started off my day in one place. I gathered with the people of God under the authority of our heavenly Father. The truth was shared with me and I sensed something different. 
something quality, something liberating, something affirming, something valuing, something corrective, something convicting, something. I experienced something of God in the family of God that made me better man or better woman for having been there with the people of God. And our collective well-being was enhanced. Our collective sins were forgiven. Our will was submitted to the will of the Father. That's a house of prayer. That's the house of God, and that's a family of God. And the next one is uh, power of God. Everyone's throwing around power of God, the power of God, power of God. Revival is about the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We think we know the power of God. Pentecostals think they understand the power of God. Charismatics think they know the power of God. Everyone thinks they understand the power of God. But if you understand that the power of God necessitates the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the power of God. Coming from a Pentecostal church, if that church didn't share the gospel, there would have been a misunderstanding of what the power of God is. Because the power of God originates in the gospel. You know, the gospel, that thing, you know, Jesus dying and all that. The power of God. When the gospel is shared, a loose, depraved, Otherwise defiled woman at a well in the middle of the day has but one thing to say. Come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Only by the power of God. And the last I'll say is the excessiveness of God. It's a quintessential quality you can't leave out. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And may you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 and 13. God is the God of the overflow. He lavishes his love upon his children. He's excessive with most everything he does. He has 10 baskets left over. He's like a river flowing out of you, not a creek, not a creek, a river. He goes to a wedding and changes 180 gallons of wine, of water into wine. Did they, did they need that much? I mean, I'm, I'm asking. His grace is sufficient. Where your sin abounds, his grace is much more abound. He's very excessive. He wants you to live an abundant life. Most of us live with a paycheck to paycheck mentality, not financially necessarily, but spiritually. We, we ask for, this is another thing, we ask for just enough to get by. Rarely do we exceed and get into what his personality is all about, into the excessive lavishness of God, the abundance of God. So therefore, we don't give liberally and we don't experience abundance, relationally, socially, financially, He's excessive. He's excessive. 
If you take these qualities outside of a list of the quintessence of God, you end up with a false God. You end up with a God who's not truly understood. This is a biblical God. Have a passion for him and realize it may lead to suffering, but he is more important than the suffering itself. Watch the world tear itself apart and surrender to the Lordship of Christ and struggle not against flesh and blood. Live under, pursue, and ask for the anointing of the Spirit of God to do even greater works than Christ. And speak, and speak with authority. Realize you have two fathers, you're part of the family of God, and consecrate yourself. Share the gospel. Enjoy the liberal excessiveness of God. ask you to stand as I describe. Not right now. One at a time, I want to ask you to stand. If I touch on something of the quintessence of God that I reviewed today, that you, for whatever reason, doesn't matter, are missing. The honest, the honest response to what I'm saying is the beginning of the infilling of the quintessence of God. You first have to acknowledge a deficit before you fill it. Where you are right now, as defined here, do you lack, be honest now, do you lack a passion for God that would help you even to endure suffering? That's you, Stan, we're gonna pray in a minute. Are you here today and you've fallen into making the enemy flesh and blood. Is the enemy your family members? Have you turned, you made an enemy of someone more so than the very one that's manipulating their every move behind them? Are you operating in your own flesh or the anointing of God? There's honesty. Are you withholding the voice? Have you fixated yourself on the first father, biological more so than your heavenly one? And has it become a snare to entrap you? That's honest. Are you just here but not connected to the body of Christ and the family of God? Are you putting your walk together individually and not helping in the walk of others, not sharing mutually in the bounty and blessing of God? Careful now, don't remain seated if this is, isn't you. When is the last time you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God? Said another way, are you resisting and keeping the power of God from other people? And who, may I ask, gave you such authority? Are you counting on 
and basking in the excessiveness of the grace of God. Let's pray. We want the quintessence, your quintessence, in our lives. Not in some condemning way are we standing. We're just standing because it's right. More right than sitting. We invite the quintessence of God into our life in any deficit we have. Deficit of understanding, deficit of experience, whatever deficit we have, we acknowledge it and invite the quintessence of God, the power of God, the anointing of God, the, the surrender to the authority of God, the passion for God, whatever it is. We acknowledge our deficit today and we'll call it a need and we'll acknowledge in the quintessence of God, it is your nature to meet needs. These are important needs that need to be met. Most important needs that need to be met. Primary needs that need to be met. Any need that fulfills a greater opportunity to serve, worship, adore you is a big need. These are big needs, Lord. Change the essence of our day-to-day by meeting these needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand and worship him as we close this service together.